It's Friday, July 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Throughout the pandemic, mental health has been a big issue, with a lot of anxiety and depression going around. But there is a silver lining. The world's psychological immune system turned out to be more resilient than we thought. Many people were able to weather the psychological challenges of the pandemic and focus on the positive, despite some real challenges. Elizabeth Dunn, psychology professor at the University of British Columbia and chief science officer of Happy Money, joins us for how the pandemic didn't affect mental health the way you think. Next, most companies are simply encouraging employees to be vaccinated, but a growing number of them are starting to require it. In the tech world, some big software companies are making a departure from industry leaders like Facebook and Google. Alison Levitsky, reporter at Protocol, joins us for how vaccine requirements are popping up at the workplace. Finally, all this talk about the effectiveness of mRNA vaccines and the Delta variant taking hold in the U.S. is making some recipients of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine wonder if they need an mRNA booster shot. Some preliminary studies suggest that it is safe to combine the two, but there has been no official guidance to do so, and it might be difficult to access a second shot. Ben Guarino, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Now, it did bounce around. There were points in the year where people were having a tough time. Again, that March and April was no joke. People had a tough time in March and April of 2020, but they bounced back. And so, you know, to me, this is just a really powerful tribute to the human spirit. Joining us now is Elizabeth Dunn, psychology professor at the University of British Columbia and chief science officer of Happy Money. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. You probably heard a lot about mental health throughout the pandemic. In a lot of cases, a lot of people did need help. It was a big disruptor to everybody's lives. But you wrote an article talking about how overall the global population was much, much more resilient. Things didn't get as bad as we thought. We were expecting waves of people going crazy and, and not feeling too well. But overall, things didn't turn out too bad. You know, it started off pretty bad, but people improved over time. So, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about this. I am part of a Lancet task force on mental health, and our job was to comb through the literature and find the best studies out there to look at the mental health consequences of the pandemic. And, you know, we really went into this data expecting to see just despair, right? Because this has just been such a terrible and difficult tragedy. And there's such a strong media narrative around this notion of a pandemic mental health crisis. So we were actually pretty startled when we discovered in the best data sets that although people did exhibit a spike in anxiety and depression early on in the pandemic around March and April, very quickly, people started to show real evidence of resilience returning pretty close to kind of pre-pandemic levels of mental health. To state this clearly, you know, this is not to diminish those people that did go through something. There were a lot of people that legitimately went through the anxiety, depression. There were deaths by suicide, all that. But overall, people did tend to come back pretty quickly. And you mentioned in the article, too, you know, by spring and summertime, people were really kind of getting over the pandemic. They wanted to get back to that normalcy. And that's why people started going out during the summer and all that. You know, so that's really where it started to turn a little bit. That's exactly right. So what we saw is that it was around summer of 2020 that people seem to be doing a lot better. You know, and interestingly, I think if we look back to sort of mid to late 2020, 
people were still experiencing pretty substantial disruptions to their lives, you know, being unable to see far flung friends and family, you know, having to work from home, lots of stuff was still, you know, a big challenge. And so I think it's still very striking to note that people maintained their feelings of life satisfaction over this period, anxiety and depression fell back down. So what I really take away from this is just people have an incredible capacity for resilience. And that in no way diminishes the really important, very valid struggles that so many people experience. But I think we also have to recognize this incredible human capacity to deal with kind of whatever comes our way. Part of this too, if I may just comment on it, you know, because we did a lot of stories on the podcast about mental health throughout this whole thing. And and part of why it sounded so bad, I think, was that a lot of services were scaled back for people to throw more power behind treating people with COVID. So in hospitals and, and, and clinical centers, you know, some of the mental health services got scaled back. So that was part of the issue. People couldn't get the normal help they might have needed. But you're right. You talk about this psychological immune system that we as human beings possess. And, and this is kind of what helps us get over these things a lot quicker. Yeah. So we use the term psychological immune system to mean this whole sort of web of cognitive abilities that we all possess that enables us to kind of make the best of even a really terrible situation, right? So if you go through a bad breakup, for example, or lose your job, you may be really devastated at first, but pretty quickly you'll figure out that, you know, hey, that there were things I didn't like about the, that romantic partner, or, you know, I'm appreciating the opportunity to get back on the dating market or whatever. So we, we know from this past research that people do have this incredible capacity to cope with negative life events. And what really stood out to me is that that psychological immune system seemed to kick into high gear in the face of the pandemic. Right. And where, you know, obviously people have always said, hey, get ready for the next one. I mean, this kind of teaches us an important lesson that we can get over these things. We can survive these things and come out better on the on the other side, hopefully, in a lot of cases. Yes, that's absolutely right. And that's why I think it was so important to us to share this message, because, you know, I think it's easy to step away from the pandemic with this impression that everybody fell apart. Everyone's mental health was just destroyed by this really negative uh, experience of living through the pandemic. And that would be the wrong lesson to take away from this. I mean, I really think what we're seeing in the data is that human beings can cope with massive changes to daily life. And that's so important, I think, as we face up not only to a future pandemic, but also to challenges like climate change. We may have to undergo real changes to our daily life as we cope with climate change. And I think we need to recognize, hey, human beings can get through this. You know, we can make big changes to our daily life and still maintain our mental health. In all the studies that you combed over, because it was over a thousand, I think you mentioned in the article, um, anything that stood out the most uh, to you throughout all of that? I think the single study that stood out to me the most was the Gallup World Poll data, which uh, the Gallup World Poll surveys thousands and thousands of people from over 100 countries around the world and measures their life satisfaction. And they've been doing this for many years. And what we see is that the life satisfaction that people reported you know, around the world in the Gallup World Poll in 2020 was identical to the second decimal point to averages from previous years. So this is just astounding to me that like all the incredible changes we all went through and life satisfaction on average around the world remained completely stable with regard to previous years. Now it did bounce around. There were points in the year where people were having a tough time. Again, that March and April was no joke. People had a tough time in March and April of 2020, but they bounced back. And so, you know, to me, this is just a really powerful tribute to the human spirit. Yeah. 
Elizabeth Dunn, psychology professor at the University of British Columbia and chief science officer of Happy Money. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. But what we've seen in the last few weeks is four software makers, um, Adobe, Asana, Twilio, and VMware, have all said that they will require vaccines at their reopened offices. Joining us now is Allison Levitsky, reporter at Protocol. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about return to work still uh, with regards to vaccines. You know, it, it's kind of hard to think about it. Sometimes you think, hey, pandemic is over. People are going back to work. But a lot of this stuff is still actually being worked out in, in many workplaces. And vaccines is one of those things that continues to, to boggle employers. You know, should I mandate vaccines before they come back to the office? Should I ask for proof of vaccination is another aspect of it, too. And a lot of the big tech giants like uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, they're not imposing these vaccine mandates but a few other companies are starting to get on board. And the thought is that pretty soon a lot more might jump on board with that, with mandating those vaccines. So, Allison, tell us what we're seeing right now. There's a lot we don't know yet. But as you said, most of the industry is still just encouraging employees to get vaccinated, but they're not requiring them um, before they go back to the office. But what we've seen in the last few weeks is four software makers, um, Adobe, Asana, Twilio, and VMware, have all said that they will require vaccines at their reopened offices. It could be a trend. It could be a summer thing as, as offices are entering their sort of soft reopening phase where they have maybe 10 or 20 percent or so of employees back at the office. But we'll, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what happens this fall and winter. But you, you were even speaking to uh, some lawyers in the, that deal with employment practices and all that, and they're saying that we're going to have to really wait till the fall, maybe quarter one of next year before all of this really sets into place. As you mentioned, kind of that soft summer opening, you know, let's have some people come back and all. But, you know, a lot of workers, a lot of employees do want an office that's vaccinated. It, it gives them more confidence to be back at the workplace. All the surveys that I've seen about vaccine mandates do show that a majority of professionals are comfortable with vaccine mandates. And there is some data to suggest that this is more common among tech workers than among other professionals. There was a survey done a few months ago um, by Qualtrics that showed that more than 80% of tech workers did support vaccine mandates at the office, but still most big tech companies are, are not requiring vaccines. So the ones that you, that you listed and also um, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, um, Intel, ServiceNow, Uber, these are some of the ones that, that are still just encouraging but not requiring. A lot of these companies are based in California or have big offices, at least in California. And they made uh, some uh, specific guidance, I guess, uh, Cal OSHA did, that uh, vaccinated employees can go without masks at the workplace. So that kind of throws everything in a loop. It's like, you know, a lot of people don't want to wear the mask. We got to do we verify if they've been vaccinated or not. So these are kind of some of the reasons why this is gaining steam. Kind of after Cal OSHA lifted its um, mask requirement at the workplace, that's when she started getting more calls from her tech clients, you know, who are asking about, hey, you know, how, how can we impose a, a vaccine mandate? You know, what do we need to know about this? What do we need to avoid? And that's, you know, as you said, it's, it's I think it's sort of perhaps gaining social acceptance because part of Kalosha's rule is that you have to be vaccinated to not wear a mask. So it kind of makes it, it more attractive to get vaccinated before going back to work. 
a side question with all of this because I know some big banking companies are starting to say, hey, well, we got to start going back to work. You know, we're not going to really do this hybrid work from home, work in the office a couple of days. Uh, have some of these tech giants jumped on any of that? I know like Twitter said pe- their people can work from home forever, basically. But uh, how about some of these other tech companies? You're asking about companies that are that are doing remote, all remote forever. Yeah. Are they are they are some of these encouraging workers to come back to the office? Or to come back to the office? Um, well, certainly Google and Apple are two of the companies that are requiring um, at least three days a week in the office for most employees. So they, they sort of stand out as, you know, companies that, that really want to they're, they're allowing some flexibility, but they really want their employees to be on campus. There are other companies that are, you know, more flexible. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, VMware is, is doing a very flexible approach where employees, you know, just about anyone can work remotely. Facebook is a little more flexible. They're, they're allowing a lot of remote work. In office, I know that um, a, a company called C3AI is, is doing an all in-office approach. And Asana is also, they're, they're going to have, I don't think they're doing all office, but I think they're, they have a pretty office-centric hybrid approach. Allison Levitsky, reporter at Protocol. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They really want to see, let's do the experiment in a clinical trial setting where people can be watched, where you have a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and then you follow it with one of the mRNA vaccines. I think their feeling is that they want to see the data, and we just don't have that data yet. Joining us now is Ben Guarino, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thank you for having me. You wrote an article uh, about a question that a lot of people are asking right now. We've been hearing a lot about the Delta variant, other variants that are popping around the country when it comes to COVID-19. And uh, for a lot of people that might have had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they're wondering if maybe they should get a booster shot of Pfizer or Moderna, the mRNA vaccines that we have available. So, Ben, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Uh, Because right now, uh, you know, there's no approval or recommendation to do this, but people are starting to ask those questions based on other studies that we're seeing out there, like with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So what what are we seeing with regards to all of this? That's exactly right. And I think people who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are asking themselves this question, not only because we see the Delta variant spreading, but also because there have been more studies involving these mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, simply because there have been so many more of these doses given. So as these data that come out and that are involving the mRNA vaccines, it's a natural question if that doesn't apply to you, if you have the J&J vaccine, what does this mean for me? And what we're starting to see, what, what I would tell people is that data are starting to emerge. There are studies underway. Johnson & Johnson just last week released the preliminary results of a study that took blood samples from people who had had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and tested those blood samples in a lab against the Delta variant. And what they saw was reactivity, that there was an antibody response against the Delta variant in lab scenarios. Coupled with the data that we know that people who are getting hospitalized right now, almost almost all of them are people who haven't been vaccinated, regardless of what type of vaccine that they've received. So the trend line that we see is that if you have any of the three types of the FDA authorized vaccines, 
you should be protected against these variants. Right. And that's an important distinction. You know, if you've had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you are protected. It does work. It's effective. But it does seem as we get more data that the mRNA vaccines are the way to go. Uh, We have some recent studies that say they it triggers an immune response and it could lead to longer lasting protection. Obviously, that has yet to bear out, but the initial data on that is very good. So that's kind of why people are saying, well, maybe I should get this one, too. It's a, you know, the Johnson and Johnson is a viral vector vaccine. These mRNA ones are based off of this new technology platform. So a couple of questions arise through all of this. Is it safe to even do that? And and we've seen some studies, like I said, with the AstraZeneca. It does point to the answer being yes, it, it does seem generally safe. There have been studies in the UK. So the AstraZeneca vaccine uses what's known as an adenovirus viral vector, which is a very similar platform, similar type of technology that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses. And so if you follow an AstraZeneca vaccine with a Pfizer vaccine, it looks to be very safe. And so I talked to a virologist who was in the unusual circumstance of being able to follow her Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which she received in the United States, and then she moved to Canada for work, where following the AZ vaccine with a Pfizer vaccine is approved. And so she went ahead as an expert, making her own professional recommendation for herself, and she received a Pfizer vaccine after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So given those data points, it seems to be safe. That said, I talked to some infectious disease experts and doctors in the United States, and they want to be cautious here. They really want to see, let's do the experiment in a clinical trial setting where people can be watched, where you have a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and then you follow it with one of the mRNA vaccines. I think their feeling is that they want to see the data, and we just don't have that data yet. Right, exactly. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves with all of this. I know we have a lot of stuff available to us, but as you've been saying, they haven't really made those recommendations yet to get these booster shots, just even in general. Timing is another factor to consider. We don't know, you know, how long you should wait until you get that booster shot. So, you know, those are other things that we have to kind of square away. And then the big question, you know, is it even possible to get a second shot if you've already had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? In a lot of cases, you can't. You show up on the vaccine rolls as fully vaccinated. That's exactly right. As far as I'm aware, there's no formal way that this is being tracked in terms of people who in the United States who have had the Johnson Johnson vaccine and then successfully acquired an mRNA vaccine. I'm not sure, but I have heard anecdotally that in certain states it's easier to do this. Perhaps if you talk to your primary care physician and they authorize this, that said, a lot of doctors may look to what the federal agencies are saying. And the federal agencies right now are saying, please don't go forward and try to do this on your own. And if it becomes necessary, an official recommendation will come if there are supporting data that will emerge too. So I think for many people, they may run into administrative or expert opinions that that may make this difficult for them to do, especially if they're being upfront and honest, which you you really should do if this is something you're thinking about. Ben Guarino, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.